How are we doing, church? You doing okay? It's good to have you guys. My name's Josh. Um, if we haven't met, it's good to have you guys here. Uh, can you guys take a second and welcome those joining us online? Give them a hand for being with us. Appreciate that. And um, I'm excited to uh, share God's word with you today. We are in week two of a series called Dawn is Coming, and uh, we're, we have this kind of fall anchor series, and we're work, working through the book of First Peter together. And so I asked you guys last week to bring your Bibles. Hopefully you did that. Uh, we're not going to have quite as much up on the screen today, but you guys will have to just pay attention with uh, your listening. And so I'm excited to go, uh, to go into today's message. Uh, the whole series um, is about the subject of hope, and that is our theme for this year is hope. And um, I can't think of any better theme or topic to be talking about this year than that theme. And uh, uh, someone once said that the Christian life uh, is a life of triumph. Um, That the Christian life, as we follow Jesus, is triumph after triumph after triumph. And I just love the idea that dawn is coming. That we have reasons to believe and have hope right now. But we also have reason to believe and have hope um, that God is at work and doing something. So hopefully you can agree with that um, this morning. I, I love this, uh, this quote by Warren Worsby. Um, he said, This hope doesn't put us in a rocking chair where we complacently await the return of Jesus. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace and on the battlefield and keeps us going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline. Isn't that awesome? And that is, that is the hope that God gives us, uh, that he is at work. And because of that, uh, we are full of hope. So what I want to talk about today um, is the hope of change. The hope of change. Kind of sounds like a political campaign, doesn't it? <laughs> the hope of change. I'm not running for any office. Um, but the hope that we have uh, that God can change things, that God can change a person, that God can change circumstances, that God can change the future, that God can change our world. I mean, that's, that's the hope we're talking about um, today. Um, I, was, I, I have a, an older brother who's a pastor, and I had the privilege of attending his church a few weeks ago while Dr. Brob, Bob, Brob, by Dr. Bob uh, brought a great message uh, to you guys. And uh, in my brother's uh, message, he started out, and I, I, it was a very impactful uh, message. I would encourage you to go to listen to it. Um, and I can give you the information for that. But at the beginning of the message, um, he was talking about a, a controversial topic, and the topic was uh, basically why all lives matter. And it wasn't a political statement, it wasn't anything like that, but just something from a biblical uh, perspective. Um, why does your life matter? Why does my life matter? Why do any lives matter? But at the beginning of the sermon, um, he said something that was really challenging. He said, each of your goal is to resist the temptation to think that this message is for somebody else. Because it's very easy to hear a sermon, and like if you're with somebody, to elbow them, like, you need to hear this. Or to think about somebody online that, you know, oh man, I wish so-and-so was, was hearing this. Um, but it was very, the whole message was very personally convicting to me, just to think about, there are people that Maybe I, oppo- I have different opinions uh, politically or whatever, but that person is still valuable in God's eyes. Um, I, may, I may really not like somebody, but I still need to treat that person with respect 
and I still need to treat that person as someone who's made in the image of God. So that was a very uh, personally convicting uh, message, and the thought dawned on me, I get it, dawned on me, get it? Uh, the thought dawned on me um, that real change um, happens at a heart level. That God wants to speak to a person's heart. So you could, you could dress up and you can change actions for a little while. You know, like I can, if I'm in the right environment, you know, I can say the right things, I can do the right things for a little while. But eventually a person's heart is going to be revealed. And we believe that God wants to speak to us at a heart level. So I want to encourage you to allow God to speak to you at a heart level um, today. And it can be scary. I'll just be, uh, be honest and upfront. It can be scary. It's a lot easier to say, man, someone else needs to hear this message. Um, but I want to encourage you to, to allow God to speak to you today um, at that heart level. Um, I'm just fascinated by, by this, this idea, but... Um, I learned something new. Uh, there's a book that I've been reading lately called uh, Take Back Your Life. I'll, I'll recommend it a couple times today. It's like a 40-day devotional book. And one thing that he, he describes in here is the, uh, the hunting patterns of uh, lions. And I uh, learned some, some new things. Because the male lions, they're, they're big and intimidating. They've got the beard and the mane, and they've got the roar that you can hear for miles. Um, but what he described was it's actually the, the female lions, the lionesses, who do the lion share. Uh, pun intended, um, of the hunting. And so he describes kind of what takes place. And the male lions, they are involved, but their part is very minimal. Um, so the, lion, the male lion's job in hunting is to stand up, look intimidating, and roar as loud as he can. Sounds about right, doesn't it, ladies? <laughs> right? uh, so what happens is when that, when that happens, the antelope, they run as far away from that roar as they possibly can. They run in the opposite direction. Guess where the female lion is? Where's the lioness? Yeah, she's hiding in, in the grass somewhere uh, and waiting for that, that prey to be scared toward her. So the point that he's making is uh, when we run from things that scare us, we're actually running toward danger and not away from it. So this idea of allowing God to speak to our hearts while scary um, is actually where we need to go. So if you, have, if you have hurts in your life, if you have fears in your life, if you have anything like that, discouragements, that's the place that God wants us to turn to and go toward so that he can then do a work right there and heal us and help us. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to see in the passage today in 1 Peter. So I want you guys to open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 35. I'm sorry, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And I'm going to do something that I probably shouldn't do on this, this Sunday that I encourage you to bring your Bibles and everything. Um, I'm going to read to you a long passage from a, a paraphrase of the Bible known as the Message. But what I typically preach from is the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, if you want to do serious Bible study, um, use, a use a good translation, um, like the NIV or others like it. If you want to get a feel for the the heart or the flow of a passage, oftentimes you can turn to something called a paraphrase, which is not as accurate of a translation, but it does give you a little bit of the idea of the movement. And, the, and First Peter, uh, written by Peter, is a very dense um, book of the Bible. You guys know how some foods are very calorie dense? Uh, donuts, for example, which I had 
one or two this morning already. Uh, don't tell my wife. She's right over there. Uh, donuts are very calorie dense. All right, so 1 Peter is a very dense book of the Bible. It has a lot of stuff packed in. So I just want you to read this. And oftentimes what they would do, what churches would do, is they would take these letters written by the apostles, and they would read long portions of Scripture. So I know we're not used to having long passages read in public or listening to that, but I just want you to try to hear the flow because it's a letter. We want to hear the heart behind what is, what is being talked about. And uh, let me go ahead and just uh, begin. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Remember, we're talking about heart change, so I want you to be thinking about um, hearing some of that in this passage. So Peter says this. He says, So roll up your sleeves. Put your mind in gear. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled in the way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. You called out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Your life is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It cost God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life that you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood. He died like an unblemished, sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought, even though it is only lately at the end of ages become public knowledge. God always knew what he was doing, that he was doing this for you. It's because of this sacrifice Messiah, whom God then raised from the dead and glorified, that you trust God and that you know you have a future in God. I want you guys to pay atten uh, special attention to these verses. Now that you've cleaned up your lives by following the truth, love one another as if your lives depended on it. Your new life is not like your old life. Your old birth came from uh, mortal seed. Your new birth comes from God and God's living word. And just think, a life conceived by God himself. That's why the prophet said the old life is a grass life. Its beauty is short-lived as wildflowers. Grass dries up and flowers droop. God's word goes on forever. This is the word that conceived the new life in you. I want to just invite you guys to join me and pray for a moment. God, I pray that as we uh, seriously consider uh, what you're saying to us, I pray that you'd give us courage to, to do that, the hard work and to listen to what you want to say to us, not to somebody else, but to what you want to say to us and to our hearts. Uh, please speak to us in these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. The bottom line uh, is this for today, that I believe that you must allow God to work in your life at a heart level in order for there to be real change. Um, change is uh, something that society is calling for in spades right now. Uh, people want change. And I do believe that, you know, while societal change is important to pursue, it won't do any good unless there's heart change. So what I'm calling us to think about today and calling us to be challenged with is how does God want to speak to your heart? 
Um, simply treating symptoms or outward actions is short-lived. God wants us to change at a heart level. So what Peter wrote in verse 22, he said, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, here's what he said, Love one another deeply, he says, from the heart. From the heart. He wants there to be some kind of a heart change. Um, author Joseph Stoll said, The heart is used in Scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. So what he's saying is, who you really are is who you are in your heart. And God appeals to and he cares most about what's happening in your heart. Does God care about what we do, our outward actions? Yes, he does. <laughs> he does. But what God cares most about is what's happening in your heart. Because he knows that whatever is happening on the outside is flowing out of who you are um, in your heart. And if all you ever do is treat the, the symptoms and not treat the causes, um, you will not have real change. The problem with this kind of hard heart work, though, is that we don't really understand the full motives of our own hearts. Um, Blaise Pascal said the heart has its reasons that reason does not know. Um, scripture says, um, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? Uh, what he's saying is um, that it's easy to deceive ourselves. It's easy to deceive and say, you know, I know exactly what my heart wants or what my intentions are. That's why we have to invite God to, to investigate us. Um, Jeremiah goes on to say, but I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Let me ask you, do you think God knows your heart? Do you think God knows your mind and your thoughts? So what we want to do is we want to invite God and say, God, I want you to tell me what it is in my heart um, that you want to work on. So one of the books I've been reading uh, recently as well, I'm going to recommend this one as a, more of a devotional. It's called uh, The Art of Listening Prayer by Seth Barnes. Um, it's a short little devotional book. Um, I read through the first chapter, and this person, basically what they're asking or encouraging you to do is to pray and to ask God questions and then listen for his response. And uh, the first couple of questions that were suggested in chapter one kind of caught me off guard, but they speak to what we're talking about. The first question that they suggested that we ask God is, God, are there ways in which I have offended you? And then listen for his response. <laughs> That's a scary question, isn't it? God, are there any ways that I have offended you? Number two, what can I do to keep from offending you in the future? This third one is even scarier. It's an open question, basically. Is there anything that you'd like to share with me? Can you imagine? Like, that's a good prayer, isn't it? God, is there anything that you would like to share with me? And leave it open-ended. God has an open mic to speak to you. Now, he could say something encouraging, like, you are loved, I love you. Uh, he could say something challenging, like, hey, uh, the way that you, you know, spoke to so-and-so. 
Um, but those are some great questions, and it's an invitation to God to speak to our hearts and to help do some change at a heart level. Um, as I mentioned that at my brother's message a few weeks ago, um, you know, he was right that there's a temptation when we hear messages to go, well, that's, that somebody else needs to hear this. Um, so in that message as he was talking through that, um, I had to fight those urges to, to think about other people, and I had to be reminded every so often that, oh yeah, God, what are you, what are you saying to me um, in this moment? Um, and I think that highlights for us uh, something that Scripture would call, or what we might, we might describe as, as the challenge of uh, self-righteousness. Um, so basically the idea is that we tend to look at ourselves as righteous or right, and we tend to look at other people as wrong. It's a lot easier to um, point out what's wrong in somebody else than to identify what maybe God wants to do in us. And uh, there's a great uh, parable that Jesus gives. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And most of the time we focus on the prodigal son, right? There's this, there's this man, this, the parable goes, that has two sons, older son, younger son. The younger son is the one that, that indulges in wild living. He takes his father's inheritance. He goes away, spends it on things that he shouldn't be doing. And then he comes back, and the father welcomes him with love and open arms. That's the part of the story that most of us think about, right? That the prodigal has returned, that God welcomes us back. But one, it's kind of a two points. That's one of the points Jesus is making is that, yes, God lavishly loves us in that radical way. But the other point is that the older brother, the older brother didn't do any of those those bad things, but in his heart, uh, he was not in alignment with, God, with the Father. So his whole point was, I can't believe that you welcomed back my younger brother. Look at all he did to squander all your stuff. I stayed here the whole time. I've been good the whole time. And what Jesus is pointing out is that the older brother suffers from something that's hidden, and it's called self-righteousness. It's that I believe that I'm right and nothing is wrong and I don't need God and, and other, people need, you know, other people need help, but I don't need help. And his whole point to the Pharisees was that self-righteousness is just as bad, if not worse, than the outward actions um, of, that are being demonstrated by the younger brother. So the point is that we all need this transformation of the heart, whether we're the prodigal that has these outward actions or whether ours are more hidden and it's more of a self-righteousness, we all need the grace of God um, to transform our lives. And I believe that this genuine heart change that we're talking about um, truly comes once a person begins to internalize what the Bible calls good news or the gospel. So when you begin to take the gospel, which I'm going to review with you, and internalize that, that's when you begin to see heart change from your own life. So here's, in a nutshell, the foundation of heart change, the gospel. And it begins with the fact that you and I were created in the image of God, that we are created loved by God, um, to have a relationship with God. We were made to love God and to glorify God with our lives. We were made to be fully satisfied in God, that all your hopes and dreams and what you were made for is found in God. And that when we're, uh, we are free when we're living according to the ways of God. In, him, in God, we have purpose and meaning and impact. The second part of the gospel is that we are free beings, and as free beings, 
we most often love ourselves. This is called selfishness or self-centeredness, and it leads to um, all the things that uh, destroy us. Um, at its core, it's the root of all sin. Uh, so here's what this looks like. Um, I live life according to my needs and my wants and my desires and my ways. Even if I can bring myself to be unselfish at times, it's usually selfishly motivated. I can be kind to you because I don't, I want, don't want you to perceive me as being unkind. But if we really dig down deep into our own hearts, oftentimes what we're battling against in change is selfishness. That I don't want to be unselfish. I don't want to be wrong. This kind of um, living... Uh, the, the effects of this kind of living are far-reaching. So this way of living leads to meaninglessness and hurt and pain and despair and aggression and pretending and loneliness and isolation, abuses and addictions and superficiality, and ultimately isolation from God. This is not how we're intended to live. But what I love about what Peter's describing is he's describing that this is how you used to live when you didn't know God, Right? Don't slide back into this kind of living um, that is typified by a selfish life or by a life that's not being cultivated by God. Instead, you've been transformed. Instead, you are made new, and that's why there's hope. It's because God is at work in our lives. The Bible uses some pretty violent language when it talks about this kind of transformation. And we're in the church, we're kind of... Um, uh, inoculated to it, but if you think about the, ter- the phrase like being born again or that we are dead in sin, um, I described this in first service. I'll try to do it in a way that's sensitive in this service. Uh, my wife is here, so she'll keep me in check. It's always a good thing. But um, when you're uh, recording, uh, so, like, so we have three kids. My wife's like, where is this going, Josh? Um, when you're doing home videos uh, in the labor room, uh, there's some parts of it that you get on camera and some parts of it that you don't get on camera, right? Labor, they call it labor for a reason. And it's not easy. It's traumatic. It's difficult. It's hard. And the Bible uses new life and birth and born again, that we are dead in sins and now we're alive in Christ. It's very dramatic language because that's the transformation that happens in a person's life. So when we begin to recognize that I am a sinner in need of God's grace, that is the beginning point of change at a heart level. If, you're, if you continue to say, I don't need help, I don't need God's help, I don't need change, you're still caught in what we'd call self-righteousness, and you will not experience this kind of change. Most people resist the idea that we need God's help. But that is the beginning place of real change. The amazing thing about the gospel is that God, in our state of needing help, doesn't leave us there. Right? He welcomes us. He welcomes us. Um, David, uh, the, the king, the Bible's, uh, one of the greatest uh, kings in, of Israel's history, his name is David. And David found himself, uh, he had failed God. He had a, an, an affair. Um, he had a relationship with somebody that he shouldn't have. And he also, uh, that went further into actually taking someone's life. 
But David uh, responded with a heart that was soft toward God. And we have in basically David's journal, David prayed to God in the midst of his failures and said this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Um, I want to share with you guys a quick story um, that my wife shared with me a few weeks ago. Um, some books, some devotional books that, that uh, she reads and that I read with our kids. But um, well, let me just kind of, um, I'll just summarize the story. So the story goes that there's, it basically models the prodigal son, that there is a, a young man that basically um, steals from his parents, and he leaves home, and for years he was estranged from his family. He never talked with them, never saw them. Uh, he had a rough patch in life. Eventually he wants to return home, but he's not sure if his family will receive him, if his parents will receive him. Um, the last thing he did was he literally stole money from his family and took off and never saw them again for years. But he finally writes them a letter and says, I'll be coming home on this day. If you want me home, I want you to hang a white handkerchief in my bedroom window. So when he's traveling back home, he's anxious, he's nervous, he has no idea if they'll receive him back. But he gets off the bus and he starts walking toward where his home is. He's afraid to look because he doesn't want to be disappointed um, if, if they're not going to welcome him back. And basically said, he said, uh, if you don't want, don't want me back, don't put it up. I'll just keep on going. But if, if it's there, I'll know that you want me. So he, uh, he wanders back. He starts heading back toward the house. And uh, when he's close enough to be able to see, he finally looks up to the window. And he doesn't actually even recognize the house anymore because his parents had taken everything in the house that they had that was white, and they covered the entire outside of the house all the drapes, all the towels, all the sheets. He didn't even recognize it because of how it was, and they were just shouting so loudly, we want you back, we want you back, and they welcomed him back. That is the beauty of the gospel, that idea that we have to recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace, but that doesn't change God's love for us, that God still loves us, and that he's done everything to remove anything that's between us and him. So God responds to a broken heart, and he closes the distance. He removes anything that divides us, and he restores the relationship through what Jesus did on the cross. And then what's cool about this, that's not the end. That happens, and then he goes to work in your life. So it's like he buys a house. We're doing some home remodeling right now, so pray for us. Everyone who's ever done that knows it's a great test on your marriage and, and your patience. So it's like um, the home remodel projects where somebody buys a house. Then they're not going to buy it and then just let it sit there. They're going to buy it, and then they're going to start to work on it. So Je with Jesus on the cross, God, God buys you. He pays, back. he pays for the punishment of your sin. You are his. You belong to him. And then the exciting stuff begins. The remodeling starts. That's this heart work that we're talking about. He's like, you know what, we need to replace the flooring in this room, and we need to paint this room, and we need to do this. And he goes to town and begins to remodel a person um, in their heart. 
That's exactly what God wants to do in your life. I want to encourage you to invite him to do that. So you must allow God to work in your life at this heart level in order for there to be real change. So let me just give you some practical stuff at the end. Um, So how do we do this? Um, How does a person cultivate a renovation of the heart? And I want to pull a couple things out of this passage from from Peter. Number one, I want to encourage you to place God's word as authoritative in your life. At the end of the passage, here's what he said. He said, all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. At this point, you're like, I'm not, is this a compliment or not a compliment? We're not quite sure. But then he says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. What he's saying is that there is one thing that is enduring, one thing that is constant, one thing that will not change, and that is the word of God. So if you want to know where to begin building in this heart renovation, it's placing God's word in a place of authority over your life. Um, I use this as a description sometimes, but oftentimes we will take the Bible and we'll go, eh, I'm not sure that I, that I like that or agree with that. And oftentimes what we're doing, this freaks people out, kind of freaks me out too, is we take the Bible, you guys going to be really hurt in your heart if I do this? It's actually hard for me to do this in my own heart. But we tend to take the Bible and we place ourselves as an authority over the Bible. I'm standing on the Bible if you can't see it. We tend to place ourselves as the authority that I'm the one in charge. I'm going to decide if this is going to have impact in my life. Instead, what I want to encourage us to do is that we would take the Bible and the Bible becomes the authority in our lives, that we are under the authority of God's word. We're submitted and yielded to God. So if you want to continue to have God work in your heart, I want to challenge you to place God's word as authoritative in your life. Number two, I want to challenge you to aim at holiness instead of happiness. Um, Holiness is a desire to be obedient to God regardless of your feelings or your desires or your wants. Here's what Peter said at the beginning of this passage. He said, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. As it is written, be holy because I am holy. What God calls us to do is to prioritize holiness, which is obedience to God, over happiness. So evaluate your decisions and your motives. How much of what I'm doing am I deciding based on what will make me happy versus what is obedience to God? But the cool thing is, I promise you, as you choose to be obedient to God, you will find that you will be happier and your life will be full of more joy because of that freedom that we have when we are obedient to God. So aim at holiness instead of happiness. Number three, I want to encourage you to evaluate every action based on love. Evaluate every action based on love. Just a reminder of our pat, the main verse we're looking at, verse 22. It says, love one another deeply from the heart. So in every interaction you have with people, 
am I doing this out of love? Every time you go to press send or post or whatever it is, am I doing this out of love? Am I doing this out of true love for the other person? Am I responding this way out of love for them? So if you want to cultivate a renovation of the heart, evaluate every action based on love. Based on love. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up. And we're going to, uh, to wind down. So what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you that he wants to work in your life at a heart level? What is it that um, you're feeling challenged to today? And I would encourage you guys to uh, ask these questions, and I'll just remind you of these questions. Why don't you guys go ahead and, and stand with me uh, this morning? Here are the three questions that were at the end of that devotional chapter that I would encourage you to ask God and to listen for his response. In your heart right now, I would encourage you to ask, are there ways in which I have offended you? And then listen to God's response. Number two, ask him, what can I do to keep from offending you in the future? And number three, is there anything that you would like to share with me? Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for uh, the men and women uh, in this room and online who are leaning in. And um, we don't want this time to be wasted. We don't want to just hear things that will uh, tickle our ears and make us walk away with, with warm, fuzzy feelings. We want to know the truth about who we are. We want to know the truth about who you are. Uh, we believe that all of our hope is in you. Um, Jesus, thank you for paying the price for our sin. And God, thank you for loving us um, in our shame and guilt. And thank you for rescuing us and redeeming us and making us brand new. God, thank you for the hope of change. And I pray that change would begin with us um, right here in our hearts. Um, please do the work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.